Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Debrief. Today, we are talking about the Holy Father, Pope Francis, on a, uh, he went on a visit to Hungary. So what was his message to the Hungarian people? Also, is Pope Francis working on a secret mission for peace in the Ukraine? And finally, we're going to return to one of last week's topics, the disconnect between the Pontifical Academy for Life and U.S. pro-lifers. In just a second, we'll invite Mike back on and dive into the debrief. Hey, Mike. To the show. Hi, Dominic. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm hungry about talking about Hungary. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. we had to go there. Friends, welcome to the debrief. It's the weekly show where we dive into news, questions, and controversies facing the church today. I'm Dominic DeSouza, founder of Smart Catholics. And I'm Mike Lewis, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Where Peter Is. Whether you're a devout Catholic, a curious seeker, or just interested in the news and happenings in the church. Here is our commentary, analysis, and context on the topics you've asked for. Okay, so let's dive into the visit to Hungary over the weekend. There was a bit of controversy, actually. I mean, no surprise there. On the lead-up to the Holy Father's visit to Hungary, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has a reputation for being a right-winger and a nationalist, and is on the surface quite different from the type of leader that Pope Francis would support. So what was the political atmosphere surrounding the visit to Hungary? Yeah, this is uh, one area where Pope Francis has uh, endured a little bit of criticism. Obviously, the idea of being seen with, uh, you know, a leader that is in the mold of the type of leader that he criticizes. Obviously, he's had some issues with um, nationalist and populist figures, strong men, and um, but he promised that he would he would go to Hungary. And, you know, Hungary is in a very key part of Europe, um, very close to the, um, you know, to where the conflict is happening between Russia and Ukraine. And so Pope Francis decided that he was going to go uh, despite political baggage or accusations that might come along with it. Um, there was fear that Viktor Orban would exploit the Pope's arrival for political political purposes. And, and it appears that he did. Um, okay. Earlier in the week, he gave a, uh, I guess, the State of the Union address in Hungary, and he made the claim uh, that Vatican City and Hungary were the only two countries left in Europe that were still working for peace. Um, basically, and I'm not, you know, a global, you know, news uh, expert, but what it seems that's been happening is. Hungary is one of the few countries that has not been voting in favor of sanctions for Russia. They have not provided um, military aid to um, to Ukraine during the war. Um, okay. And Orban has a longstanding friendship with Vladimir Putin. So the although Hungary and Orban have condemned the attack on Ukraine, um, they haven't exactly been the most, uh, you know, vocal supporters of of the Ukrainian people. Um, now, Pope Francis, meanwhile, as as the Pope, in a lot of the world, you know, people want to see like victory for Ukraine or or a positive military outcome. Which, I mean, obviously, in in the secular world, that that's an issue. You know, that's the way that we tend to approach war. We see winners and losers. Pope Francis is calling for peace. He's calling for a ceasefire. He's calling for 
uh, diplomatic solution. Obviously, mm -hmm. in Catholic teaching, war is always a last resort. And so he's not rooting for for Ukraine to rout Russia, although mm -hmm. he has obviously uh, acknowledged that Russia is the aggressor, that Russia's invasion is unjust, that the he's described the Ukrainian people as martyred. Um, but in a role as in his role as Pope, his his purpose is to call for peace. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know Viktor Orban's motivations, but as a weird coincidence, their messages align in an mm -hmm. interesting way. Um, another thing that happened during this uh, during this visit was that Pope Francis met with a Russian Orthodox uh, bishop. His name is um, Metropolitan Hilarion, and he is, well, he used to be uh, Patriarch Kirill in Moscow. He used to be his right-hand man, but okay. apparently there was some disagreement between them, and I it, it, in June of last year, and he got shipped off to Budapest in Hungary. So he met with Pope Francis, although I have seen a number of people criticizing Pope Francis for meeting with someone from the Russian Orthodox. Pope Francis will meet with anyone. And, you know, I'm certain that they talked about peace. Mm -hmm. So that that there was a little bit of tension. Pope Francis is out of step with, uh, you know, what mainstream news and and with you know what most of the west is is pushing for mm -hmm. and orban was able to leverage that uh pope francis approach to some political advantage i think gotcha so were there any areas where they did find common ground apart from where they were disagreeing or actually let's start with the common ground what did they agree on um yeah so one of the areas where they where they definitely um agreed was or where Pope Francis commended the Hungarian uh, people and the Hungarian government was that they were welcoming to refugees from Ukraine. Um, the uh, a lot of American right wingers are are very um, supportive of Hungary in part because they have uh, strong policies that favor families. Um, if you have four or more kids, you get a significant tax break. Um, they've been somewhat resistant to. Uh, ideological colonization. That's a big issue in, in, you know, that Pope Francis has spoken out about. So in, in those areas, uh, you know, there was definitely areas of common ground and areas where uh, Pope Francis gave his support to, uh, to Hungary. Gotcha. And then areas of disagreement, like yeah, uh, and immigration this was, and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's obviously there's a, you know, Orban and, and the Hungarian nation as a whole has been very, um, negative towards accepting immigrants, accepting refugees from uh, from nations other than Ukraine, um, and Pope Francis did speak out boldly against um, against nationalism, against populism, um, and his closing at his closing mass, he spoke about how um, about opening doors and welcoming, and that's really that was a very strong message that he opposes the immigration policies in Ukraine. Okay. So moving on to the war between Russia and Ukraine, he's generally received, the Holy Father has received high marks for diplomacy, but he's consistently received criticism from world leaders and, and from the press for his stance on the Russian war against Ukraine. So why? Well, we, uh, as we discussed earlier, um, it's, it's because he has been reluctant to call people out by name He's been reluctant to 
um, strongly push uh, one military over the other. Um, and the the type of diplomacy that the um, th that the Vatican has gone for for you know the last century and a half. I, I mean, I can think of Pope Benedict the Fifteenth in the lead up to um, to World War One, or we talk about um, you know Pope Pius the Eleventh who died you know on the on the eve of World War Two. I mean, that war is something that um, popes have strongly spoken out against. Pope Francis has said there's no such thing as a just war. Um, and what he means, he doesn't mean that there are not justifications to defend yourself or defend your neighbors, but every war has an unjust element to it. In this case, the invasion by Russia was unjust. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the war, individual soldiers, military leaders, propagandists, there are injustices that go on throughout any war. And really what we need is peace. That's really the only, you know, no matter who's right and wrong. Um, and there is a clear right and wrong. And Pope Francis has acknowledged it, which side is in the right and which side is in the wrong. But peace is what is what he really wants to aim for. Okay. So, so out of that, out of his flight back from Rome, we're now hearing that there is a secret mission for peace that the reporters had uh, well, we're very interested in. And when asked, government officials from Russia and Ukraine denied any knowledge of such a plan. What is going on with this secret mission? Okay, so during Pope Francis's, uh, he gave a very short interview this time on his way back from, from Hungary because it was a relatively short flight. And at a certain point, he spoke about how he and Viktor Orban um, were discussing a mission going on. Well, I'll read the words. Even now there is a mission going on, but it is not public yet. Let's see. When it is public, I will talk about it. So then what happened was he, you know, he didn't give any information and uh, reporters called up government officials in, in Moscow and Kiev and they said they had no idea what he was talking about. And because he had been getting a little bit of uh, pushback about his approach to the war already, um, he was sort of the butt of some jokes, it seemed. Um, now, last night I saw headlines, and then this morning there have been a number of stories where the Vatican Secretary of State, Cardinal, pa uh, Cardinal Paroline, uh, acknowledged that this plan does, that this plan, whatever it is, is in place, and that we'll be hearing about it soon, and that he's surprised that these other governments are denying it. Of course, if it's a secret pl plan, maybe the Pope shouldn't be talking about it on an airplane. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see exactly what's going on. Okay. It does by, I mean, the fact that he's mentioning it does seem to imply that this is not something, I don't know, of a political level, but more of a, uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't I seem mean, to be as serious as like a cold war conspiracy. Yeah. I mean, really he, he's giving no, he didn't give any, any real details. Um, I mean, it could be something as simple as a, as a prayer initiative, uh, maybe he's going to consecrate Russia and Ukraine all over again to, to the Immaculate Heart <laughs> of Mary. I mean, you know, it could be, uh, I mean, that was probably his, his most significant or his most, um, in a spiritual sense, it was probably one of the biggest actions that he's done, you know, and it, yeah. it, it was one of the few things that unified traditionalist Catholics and, uh, mainstream Catholics too. So it was, it was very popular and it was something that the Ukrainian bishops called for. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea what, what he could be talking about because, um, you know, his aim is to end hostilities and, and mm -hmm. I just don't, you know, I don't know what the route is. And, and a lot okay. of people don't. Well, um, we're going to come back and keep following that storyline because <laughs> yes. that's, that's cool. All right. Uh, last week, we also, we discussed a lack of effective communication between the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia, and pro-life Catholics in the U.S. And so you then went on a, a, I don't know, rabbit hole, a research thing, and you published a long article looking at the background of this disconnect. You mentioned that Archbishop Paglia was put into a tough position. What do you mean by that? Well, so what I did, um, you know, last week I expressed a lot of frustration because there's this very consistent inability of Archbishop Paglia and the later clarifications of the Pontifical Institute for Life to explain what he's talking about. He'll say things that are, you know, interpreted as anti-pro-life or pro-choice or pro-death talking uh, whistle, dog whistles. Mm, and yeah. he's he's in this tough spot. And, and in the article, I, I basically dug deep. Now, Archbishop Paglia has two jobs. Um, he is the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, and he is the chancellor for the John Paul II Institute. Um, and both of these have long histories of, you know, tension with Pope Francis, especially the Academy for Life, um, not just with Pope Francis, going back to uh, Pope Benedict's day. And this is what I didn't really realize was um, the Pontifical Academy for Life, which was founded by John Paul II in 1994, um, was an academic academy that there's also the Pontifical Academy for Sciences, the Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences. There used to be the Pontifical Academy for the Family, which um, was Archbishop Paglia's previous job. Um, that was folded into another department. But um, the Pontifical Academy for Life, rather than being a, a research organization or one that evaluated moral issues and, um, you know, came up with ideas and, and engaged in dialogue, it, it had grown quite large. And it was a number of uh, members who had lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were more like activists rather than members of an academy. So, uh, for example, in 2009, um, the then president, Archbishop Reno Fizikela, uh, sorry about my pronunciation, um, he wrote an editorial about, and I don't know if anybody remembers this case, but it was a nine-year-old girl in Brazil who um, had an abortion um, because she had been raped by her stepfather. Obviously, abortion is wrong. Circumstances of this entire affair were tragic. Um, you know, it's one of those really tough cases. Her archbishop, decided to make a sort of a public show of excommunicating everyone who was involved in publicly, you know, announcing the excommunication of everyone involved in this abortion. Now, involvement in abortion carries an automatic excommunication with it. It needs to be, mm -hmm. the bishop needs to absolve that. Um, but because this was such a, you know, uh, such a tragic case, um, Archbishop Physicalis, you know, decided that, or he, his response was that this archbishop maybe had come across too harsh 
uh, too harshly and you know um, too unfeeling by focusing rather rather than focusing on on the tragedy of this poor little girl, mm -hmm. um, focusing on the excommunications. Well, twenty seven members of the academy wrote a letter of protest. Um, five of them essentially called for his head. Um, you know, so this is the kind of thing that would happen, you know, in in this academy. And and by the time uh, Paglia was put into this position, a number of these um, members of the academy had become very vocal opponents of Pope Francis. Um, you know, some of them had signed petitions accusing him of heresy. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them had written papers or, or articles accusing him of heresy. So it was, you know, and so basically what Pope Francis decided to do, and, and this is you know, read the article for more of the details, but he basically put Paglia in charge. He said, I'm going to refound the Institute. And he essentially fired all the members. Wow. <laughs> and so we're starting yeah. again for scratch, from scratch. Then a few months later, they re-established the Pontifical Academy for Life with mm -hmm. 45 members. Um, and it was probably about half and half old members and new members. Mm -hmm. It had a new scope. It was described as primarily scientific. We're going to explore all life issues. Um, okay. Now, our friend, my friend Rodrigo Guerra from from Mexico, he was one of the few that made the cut. Um, you know, but the problem is, and this is, and sorry to, you know, give this long background, um, but you know what what it, what comes down to is now that the people now the people who were inside the academy who are criticizing the academy, mm -hmm. they're now outside the academy. So on top of being, um, you know, like being agitators, now they, they aren't bound by, you know, they're, they're embittered rather than bound to being within the academy. So, wow. so it's just the, and they've gotten, and because of the general media landscape, they've been mm -hmm. able to find a lot of uh, friendly media outlets to help them promote this message that Archbishop Paglia is, um, you know, he's a member of the Lavender Mafia. He's um, he he doesn't care about abortion. He's not pro-life. He supports assisted suicide. He's, um, you know, and, and so that's basically what's going on. And then over on the other side with the John Paul II Institute, he's faced similar challenges there as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's maybe to a little bit lesser of a degree. But um, and this has gone back. This went back to the to the um, synods on the family. Um, now, one thing that was noted was that n no members of that faculty were invited to either one of the synod synods, so there was already a little bit of bad blood. Um, mm -hmm. But then when Amoris Laetitia was released, the leaders of the um, Pontifical Academy, uh, or the uh, John Paul II Institute for Marriage on the Family, so you have the, the Pope's, the Pontifical Institute of um, Marriage and the Family is basically resisting the pontiff's landmark document on marriage in the family. Um, they rejected, yeah. you know, basically they took the anti-Amoris Laetitia side of the argument. They released papers or they mm -hmm. would publish books that would give, that would pretend to be friendly to Amoris Laetitia, but they would give sort of the false interpretation of Amoris Laetitia. And mm -hmm. I think uh, Pope Francis decided that that, Institute needed an overhaul as well. Mm -hmm. And so he refounded that or, you know, that Institute and um, mm -hmm. their president and vice president were, uh, you know, 
removed from the faculty and there have been a lot of hard feelings there as well. Um, there's a rumor, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it from several sources that Monsignor Livio Molina, the, uh, you know, the former president of the, of the Institute was actually one of the primary ghostwriters of the dubia. Um, you know, okay. basically the, the JP2 Institute was quietly leading the resistance against Amoris Laetitia. And if you're working for a pontifical institute on marriage and the family, uh, in 2023, it, well, yeah. When Amoris Laetitia comes out, you, like you mm -hmm. can't, you, you just can't be opposed to it. So, yeah. You know, but that, that's those have been two marks against Pope Francis against Pope Francis's mm -hmm. papacy by his critics that he is yeah. that he let mm -hmm. such um, strong people go. But it was you know it was a chaotic situation. So, mm -hmm. um, but this is what this is what Paglia walked into. Uh, in your in your article talking about support, then you concluded uh, the root of the communication problem is a fundamental difference in the way the Catholics in the U.S. and Catholics in Italy approach the issue of abortion. Can you unpack that? Yeah, and, and so this so besides the historical background, um, I noted that that Archbishop Paglia makes himself a very easy target, and there are uh, cultural reasons for that, political and cultural reasons for that. As as everyone you know, as American pro-lifers know, um, when Roe v. Wade, when the decision was handed down in 1973, only a handful of states and the District of Columbia. Uh, had liberal abortion laws. Um, there were states where uh, they had referendums to legalize abortion and they lost by huge margins. Um, there was momentum to repeal some of the laws. For example, the state of New York, the state legislature in 1972 like, actually voted in favor of a law that would have repealed their uh, abortion policy, but it was vetoed by the governor. But I mean, you could see that there was this momentum going. The pro-life movement was, you know, working to to prevent these laws from going into effect. And then, boom! In 1973, Roe versus Wade happens. Any restrictions on abortion in the first trimester and most restrictions in the second trimester are swept away, and all of a sudden, that became the focus of the U.S. pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. the the supreme court ruled 7 to 2 in favor of legal abortion and it was on January 22nd 1973 and January 22nd 1974 was the first march for life and you know i i wrote about how cardinal o'malley was involved in in the planning of of those early marches and was a good friend of their founder nelly gray our entire view of abortion in the united states has been for 49 years was focused on finding that fifth Supreme court justice hmm. who, who would help overturn Roe so that the issue would return to the States. It would return to the people so that there could be a democratic process. Instead, hmm. it was just sort of a shock. And then, you know, the, the process was stopped dead in its tracks. Um, okay. And whereas in Italy, this is what happened was, there was the legislature passed a law in 1978 called law 194. There was one referendum in 1981 to overturn this law. It happened in May of that year. Pope John Paul II spoke out very strongly against this on Sunday, May 10th, Sunday, May 13th, 
he was shot in St. Peter's Square. And as he's recovering in the hospital from this attack, um, the Italian people ratified abortion with 60, 68% approving. That was the end of the political pro-life movement in Italy, 1981. Okay. So when Italians look at abortion, they aren't looking at it and they can't look at it in political terms. They don't have pro-life politicians. There's no mm -hmm. realistic chance of changing abortion law in a significant way in Italy. Even their far right politicians will, you know, will say, I'll protect law 194. That's I'm not touching that. You know, that, that there's yeah. no political viability to anyone who's trying mm -hmm. to overturn Italian law. And so, and, and I think on the Pontifical Academy's part, they don't realize how real, I mean, Roe versus Wade was overturned last year mm -hmm. by happenstance, you know, just a certain combination of, of retirements and, and justice, you know, Supreme Court justices dying and, you know, the situation resulted in the overturn. Um, you know, if we were in a similar situation as Italy, as Italy is, we might not be as singularly focused on abortion law, but that's just how we've wound up. And there's just this miscommunication, which you mm -hmm. can read about it more in my article. But I think I think we need to understand why these two approaches are, are so different from each other. Well, look, thank you for going into such depth with all of this. And we'll put the link in the show notes for those yeah. who want to check it out. Please visit wherepeteris.com and have a look at this article. Mike, thanks for the debrief um, this week. Maybe me. next week we'll know a little more about this peace plan. If not, we'll just keep watching until the Holy Father says something. <laughs> That's um, right. Any other uh, links or, or topics that we've covered today will also be in the description if people want to read a little further. Uh, this conversation is brought to you by smartcatholics.com, the free online communi uh, community for millennials, creators, and learners. Join the private Where Peter Is group to ask questions, share your insights, and suggest topics for our next episode. If there's something going on you'd like us to weigh in on, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and visit wherepeteris.com for articles, commentaries, spiritual reflections written by and for faithful Catholics who support Pope Francis. Please share this episode with friends, family, and followers. Hit the subscribe button to follow Where Peter Is. Also, please hit that like button if this was helpful to you in any way and drop a comment. It really does help YouTube share this video with like-minded people. Absolutely. Subscribe twice if you can. Um, but anyway, and if you're interested, if you're interested in supporting us even more, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor for Where Peter Is. Um, your generosity will help us to continue to improve the show and to continue to run the website. Thanks for joining us, friends. When it comes to news and controversies in the Catholic Church, stay curious, informed, and engaged. God, God bless you.